The recent action in the U.S. Treasury market has been quite interesting and even perplexing in some regards. U.S. GDP growth is strong, recent inflation numbers have been well above trend, and the tone of the June Fed meeting was slightly more hawkish. Treasury rates must surely have gone up, right? The yield curve must have steepened. Not so fast, my friend. Rates have in fact taken another leg lower and are materially below the level seen in March. Long rates, at least, as the curve has also flattened with some upward pressure on rates at the short end continuing into the second quarter. The bond market, and more specifically the U.S. Treasury market, is widely viewed as the smart money when it comes to divining the macroeconomic landscape. Is there a deeper message about growth and inflation that we should be paying close attention to right now? This is Markets in Focus from Carillon Tower Advisors, and I'm your host today, Steve Mazarek. Join me and my colleagues as we discuss the latest trends and developments driving the markets. Be sure to subscribe for new episodes and visit us at marketsinfocuspodcast.com for additional insights. Joining me now are Todd Thompson, Managing Director and Portfolio Manager at Reams Asset Management, and Dimitri Silva, Portfolio Manager at Reams Asset Management. Todd and Dimitri, welcome. Hi, Steve. Thanks, Steve. So, Dimitri, let's kick things off today with you. What exactly is the bond market telling us right now? And if it's telling us anything, if there is some signal among the noise, should we be listening? Great question, Steve. So, as a recap, what's happened in the bond market is long-dated yields have come down pretty significantly, uh, while the intermediate to short part of the curve hasn't moved that much. What we've seen is that, you know, if you think about a long-term yield of a five-year rate, it's come down roughly about 75 basis points since the end of the first quarter. But what you've also seen is that's been primarily driven by real rates. So if you look at inflation expectations, which is the other component of nominal yields, they've essentially been unchanged since the end of the first quarter. But you've had a significant drop, about 70 plus basis point drop in five-year real yields. Now, what does that tell us? Well, before I say what that tells us, I think there's a reason for it, a couple of reasons that's that's possible. First of all, we've seen, you know, COVID make a bit of a comeback, the Delta variant specifically, you know, increasing uh, the number of cases globally. That's been one of the drivers where people's expectations for growth, I think, have come down. And, you know, we can, even if you look at a, at a different market like the equity market, what we've seen is a significant derating of growth as implied by the equity market. To give you some sense of the numbers for one of the metrics that we look at, it's essentially given back all the growth expectations since the beginning of this year. So, for example, growth expectations picked up very significantly as we had COVID vaccinations start up, as well as the uh, prospects of a, a divided Congress go away at the beginning of this year. You had growth expectations as priced by the by the equity market go up pretty significantly. But we've had a somewhat of a roundabout tour since since the end of the first quarter where essentially they've given it all back up. And we think COVID's definitely been one big driver of it. Even though to us, we think that uh, this is more of a short term in nature and that's something that should be faded. It's clear that the market's been worried about this. And as a function of that, you've seen people who had extended short positions in the bond market cover those positions. The market was very much biased towards steepeners at the beginning of the year and through the first quarter. And what we've seen is some of those positions get unwound as growth expectations have fallen over these last few months. 
we do think that this is, you know, can we explain where long data real yield currently where that negative 70 basis points, can we explain that fundamentally? No. What we think is these, these, these are due to some technical flows, specifically by foreign central banks who've been big buyers, as far as we can tell, based on some of the metrics that we, that we look at, especially in the futures market. They've been big buyers of bonds, and we think they've been putting some of the cash. They essentially liquidated some of their holdings and treasuries back in the first and second quarter of 2020 during the crisis. We think they're putting some of that money back into the market, and when that's happened, given, given the size of those flows, it can have significant impacts. So all in all... We've had a de-rating of growth, no questions asked uh, as per the market, but does it justify long-dated real yields at where they are currently? No. Great. Thanks, Dimitri. So I guess just sticking with this question for a moment, do you think there are any clear messages about long-term growth and also inflation? I mean, aside from some of the technical uh, features that have been impacting rates. So what about intermediate and long-term macroeconomic views? Is this drop in long-end rates along with some upward movement at the short end telling us anything that we should really be paying attention to from a macroeconomic perspective? Sure. So, you know, if you look at where those, especially the long-term real yields are, say called five-year forward real yields are for the U.S., it's currently trading at negative 70 basis points, you know, in the area. And it would be somewhat inconceivable, once again, to assume that, you know, growth expectations for the U.S., long-term growth expectations of the U.S., are you know at those types of depressed levels clearly interest rates are not only governed by long term growth expectations but supply and demand factors uh, but we think that those are somewhat especially as the federal reserve starts you know, talking about tapering, we get to a somewhat of a more normal supply-demand balance. We don't think that these types of growth rates as implied by the bond market are likely to be consistent with, you know, what's going to happen over the, over the longer term. Todd, let's uh, turn to you for this next question. It's been well documented that U.S. inflation, as measured by the Consumer Price Index, or CPI, has struggled to hit 2% consistently in the post-GFC period, and has not been what most would call problematically high since really the 1980s. So despite this long trend of benign CPI inflation, it sure feels like we have significant inflation out here in the real world. Inflationary pressures really seem to be everywhere at the moment, yet the full extent of this is not being reflected in consensus expectations for future inflation. Where is the disconnect, and what happens if and when that disconnect gets resolved? Great question, Steve. First thing I'd like to talk about is how do you measuring inflation expectations? And one of the first issues really need to tackle right away is you can't use the tips market, which is aggravating to some because it was built as a market to be able to express an opinion on inflation expectations implied by the market. And unfortunately, uh, that market, if you were to look at implied inflation, it's in the low twos. It did creep up to depending on the maturity you're looking at, five, 10 years, it did go up to around two and a half percent, but it has come back down to high teens or around two and a quarter. And that is abnormally low with, as you alluded to before, inflation that is, depending on your yardstick, somewhere in, in the year over year, four to five percent range right now. And the question is, is why can't you use the tips market? Why is it invalid, invalid at this time? And we believe a the main reason for that is the Fed purchase program each month, whereby the quantitative easing program they're working on is $80 billion in treasuries a month, in addition to $40 billion of mortgage-backed securities. A large 
part of that $80 billion happens to be Treasury inflation protected securities. And as a proportion of outstanding Treasury inflation protected securities, it's rather large in so much that it's enough to distort the supply-demand equilibrium of those securities. Um, said in simple terms, they have bid up the prices, the yields have fallen, and the resulting implied inflation is distorted because of those purchases. There's no natural equilibrium by which to draw information content. So you have to move on, in our view, to something else away from that. There are several indicators out there. The Fed will often mention these in their correspondence. University of Michigan survey has uh, various components in addition to the conference board and the New York Fed as well has other surveys to be able to glean inflation expectations, not just in the near term, but also for the long term. But those inflation expectations are elevated, not as high as current readings. If you, as an example, the University of Michigan survey, the the near term number for them – in regard to one year out, has a rating of 4.8%. But their survey for longer-term expectations, five to 10 years out, is much more modest at 2.9%. It's higher, obviously, than the level we've been trending at for the last decade at two or, or less. But 2.9% is is still relatively subdued and doesn't really represent a regime change or fundamental permanent change in the level of, of goods and services inflation in the future. And so I do concur that there is a disconnect. Expectations are relatively subdued. And how does that get reconciled? I believe one of the reasons to you can attribute why these expectations are low is the market has embraced the Fed's rhetoric about this being a transitory phenomenon. You saw rates rise relatively sharply in the first quarter, but have since come back. But the Fed is kept on that drumbeat about this being temporary. These are short-term supply situations that will recede. And they've been saying it so much that the market has seemed to believe it, hence rates coming down in the second quarter. So I believe the first issue is, is that the market believes it. The second issue I want to draw your attention to is what I call a recency bias. And that is, it's been quite some time. It's been the 70s and 80s, the last time we've had debilitating inflation. And as time has rolled on, there's now three decades since then, you have a lot of those market participants and people involved in these surveys have moved out of the cohort. And now you have a younger cohort who's predominating those surveys. And so those people don't remember the ravages of inflation and more or less will have a recency bias of mentioning and only remembering what they know from their recent past, which is more subdued or 2%, uh, give or take, inflation, and even in the last decade, even even between one and two. And so I believe there is definitely an ingredient of that that goes on in regard to expectations right now. I want to point out to you a little bit inside of the New York Fed survey of inflation. They actually provide the granularity whereby they stratify the responses by age. And you'll see exactly that phenomenon, which I just mentioned. The under 40 cohort has the long-term inflation expectations of 3.08. The 40 to 60 cohort has 3.55. And the greater than age 60 cohort has in long-term inflation expectations of 4%. So you'll see that the older people who remember what happened in the 70s and 80s will definitely acknowledge the the possibility of a flare-up again 
whereas the recency bias of the younger generation more or less understates the threat of inflation. So I believe that's really what's going on now in regard to why there's a disconnect. And we're believing the transitory, and I think there's too much recency bias. Thanks, Todd. Those are really great insights on the current inflation picture. Changing tack just a bit, much has been written about the need for the Fed to normalize monetary policy, as well as the appropriate timing and sequencing of those actions. Less has been written about the ability of the Fed to normalize policy. Some claim that the U.S. is mired in a Japan-style liquidity trap that will, in combination with the significant debt overhang, place a natural ceiling on interest rates and perhaps curb long-term GDP growth. Dimitri, what are your thoughts on these topics? Great question, Steve. I think a lot has been made about how, you know, there's a Japanification of the world and that the U.S. is following that path. But I think it's, uh, you know, if you look at the numbers, I think it's very clear that the U.S. is very different from Japan. For example, uh, the working age population, you know, in Japan has been shrinking for the last you know, 25 to 30 years since the mid-90s, and it's down about 15% since then. For the United States, you know, as a, primarily as a function of, of immigration, we, we've, the working age population of the, of the country has been increasing and is expected to increase all the way through 2060. So, so in that environment where, where you still have positive population growth and some productivity growth, you expect real GDP Definitely to be lower than what it's been historically, but not to follow the same path that Japan has, you know, over these last 25 years. It's also interesting to think that, you know, one of the other reasons why we think this is more technical in nature and rather than fundamental in nature is that if you think that Japan has very poor growth prospects and hence they should have lower real yields, what you see today is even on a long-term basis, on a five-year, five-year or a 10-year, 10-year basis, the U.S. actually has lower real yields today than what Japan does. So that kind of is a good gauge for us to you know, understand that this is much more of a function of clearly a big buy in the market, more price-insensitive buys in the market that can distort you know, supply-demand, as Todd mentioned. But this is a short-term phenomenon. We believe that over time, U.S. real yields will get back to you know where they were pre pre COVID, which was fifty to seventy basis points higher. That will be more in line with where real neutral rate would be. Now, if you you know if take a step back, as I mentioned, the real neutral rate is not just as a function of trend growth, but it also is impacted by savings versus investment imbalances, as I mentioned. But you know something that has held back real neutral rates over these last 25 years have been things like low dependency ratios. So uh, dependency ratios essentially are talking about, uh, you know, how much of the population that's either under 18 or over 64 versus a working age population. And even though you'd think, hey, we've had a population that has been uh, aging for a while, the United States has actually had a, you know, lower dependency ratio over the last, call it, um, especially up till about 2015, where, you know, the reason being is that we've had a lot of uh, younger people, in, in essentially a lower number of younger people as well as having a higher number of older people. So the dependency ratios have been coming lower. But you know what we've seen is that has turned since 2015. And what we're going to get is savings are going to have to get drawn down as the dependency ratio of the working age population 
uh, starts creeping up. So that's one reason. The other reason is, you know, we've had emerging market savings cuts. So essentially world reserves as a percentage of GDP, you know, from say early 2000s all the way up to 2010 went up from something like 40% of GDP to 100% of GDP. So when you have those dollars being essentially recycled back to the United States, that has an impact of bringing down real neutral rates. But what you've seen in since call it mid 2015 is that that stayed pretty flat suggesting to you that you're not getting these large changes in aggregate you know savings that gets recycled back into assets investments and hence uh, reduce that real neutral rate so long story short we think there's a turning in terms of those long term supply demand factors plus we think that trend growth while it's lower than it's been over these last 25 years is not going to significantly drop so as to suggest that uh, you'd have uh, real neutral rates of negative 70 basis points for the United States. We just don't think that's uh, fundamentally sound. Maybe a follow-up question on the Fed's ability to normalize policy, remove QE and eventually move off of the zero policy rate. How much scope and ability does the Fed actually have to raise interest rates and to to stop their large-scale asset purchases? I mean, what is your sense of the end game here for the Fed? Well, I, mean, I think it goes back to that, that that question of whether we are becoming Japan in some form. And, and as I mentioned, I don't think that's the case. Clearly, you know, the, the Fed having a, a balance sheet that's uh, way larger than it's been historically as a function of GDP and how they normalize that over time is going to be an interesting factor. This is unknown. We haven't had this type of normalization. So, you know, go on. We had a small normalization that took place of the balance sheet, call it you know, right around 2017 and 2018, that didn't go too well. So there are definitely more questions than answers there. But all in all, we do think that, you know, especially in this cycle, given how growth is likely to be very robust, given we have we have quite a bit of uh, excess savings left in the system, you know, there are, you know that, that can be spent. There is a sense that, you know, clearly fiscal policy after for a while being, um, on the dormant part, now fiscal policy is opened up, which will possibly increase public investment. Hence, you know, will be, you know, hopefully something positive for, for, for real GDP over time. So as a function of some of these things, as I mentioned, the fact that, you know, trend growth in the U.S. is nowhere close to what it's in Japan. And the fact that there are some short term benefits, you know, in terms of excess savings that consumers have, plus the fact that the fiscal policy is likely to be relatively accommodative over the next few years. Uh, given the fact that, you know, there's definitely a lot been done. While, yes, we've talked about a lot about these things, but they have not actually been executed yet. And, and that will flow through in the next four or five years. But the point being is that we still think that the United States can normalize policy. It will be a challenge, no questions asked, given the size of the balance sheet, but we think they'll get there. Okay, thanks. Final question today, this one for you, Todd. And it ties back to the discussion about the disconnect in terms of inflation expectations and, and what we all feel like uh, is accelerating inflation every time we go to the store and we pay for something. There are some interesting and potentially very impactful dynamics at play right now in global supply chains, as well as the domestic labor market. Uh, What are these trends telling you and how does Reams expect these to play out over the course of 2021 and into 2022? Thanks, Steve. That's a great question. In regard to the supply chains, they've obviously been very stressed when you have an economy that went into a retrenchment mode, not knowing how long the shut-in would transpire and then to have it turned around 
relatively quickly, the early part of 2021, it would stress the system. It wasn't ready for a vivacious turnaround of demand and consumption. And we had done so much retrenchment that it felt a lot more chaotic than what it, it is. This economy is very dynamic and has, for decades now, run on more of a just-in-time inventory and process for the sake of capital efficiency. And that is not abating at all. In fact, I'll give you one example of this. The railroad industry, which is a very large component of industrial logistics across the United States, has implemented what is called precision scheduled railroading in the last five years, whereby they're using less cars and less people by operating on tighter schedules. Well, they have been hit particularly hard by the abrupt resumption of demand as they've had been caught short of cars to be able to accommodate what the demand has been. And so, but we're seeing that process play out everywhere and has spilled over into goods and services prices. We've had shortages at different various commodities that, that have played through to on the food side and the much publicized issue with the chips in Taiwan that have affected the whole auto industry has been much publicized as well. We see a lot of these as likely to abate. Again, the economy that is this dynamic will adjust over time. Those replacement of the chipsets will occur in the, sometime in the second half this year and relieve the pressure on new cars as well as used cars and the spillover effects into the rental car markets. So we expect that to abate, as will other parts of the economy in regard to these supply chain issues. So overall, much of what we're seeing in inflation is definitely will be proved to be transitory as these pressures are relieved. However, one area that is a particular concern to us is away from supply chains is really on, on the labor side, which in and of itself is a, a raw material for the business world is, is human capital. And there's a shortage right now. We have an estimated of over 7 million jobs looking at where the employed levels were before the pandemic. There's still over 7 million people still less in the workforce than there was then. There's over 8 million jobs openings right now. And that seems to be a disconnect where the employment gains have proven to be less than expected every month for various reasons have been given, including the lingering federal subsidies in regard to employment benefits that were added on to state benefits that has discouraged workers. There's that issue that's been talked about. There's been the issue of inadequate child care that has been bandied about. In addition to concerns about health and safety with COVID uh, for people returning to public workplaces. One additional one that is probably one of the most widely discussed one is a mismatch of skills versus what is being needed, demand is in the market and available skills of those workers. All these have been various factors that have cited for why you have not been able to draw down available jobs quicker and match those people in the marketplace. But it seems to me that what for whatever the reason it is, there is a shortage of workers, particularly at the lower wage end of the spectrum, including hospitality and retail, that is going to be a challenge to be rectified. Before the pandemic, President Biden was discussing the desire to have a $15 minimum wage legislated. Well, it seems that it's possible to have 
almost a, something higher than that without legislation, just because of the pressure of trying to fill these jobs. We're seeing several businesses use signing bonuses and the like, in addition to higher stated wages to be able to draw these people off the sidelines. This could prove to be one catalyst for higher inflation as it's could lead to higher income translating to higher consumption and be more of a, a push issue into the system. So that's one issue that we're focusing on, probably more so than the supply chain. We think the more stress point that should be a, of concern to investors is really on the labor front. Great. Well, Todd and Dimitri, uh, thank you very much. Those are great insights. And, and also thanks to everyone out there for listening to Markets in Focus from Caroline Tower Advisors. Remember to subscribe to our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also find additional market insights at marketsinfocuspodcast.com. Thank you, everyone. Podcasts are for informational purposes only. This channel is not monitored by Caroline Tower Advisors. Please visit marketsinfocuspodcast.com for additional disclosure. This material is a general communication being provided for information purposes only. It is educational in nature and not designed to be taken as advice or a recommendation for any specific investment product, strategy, plan feature, or other purpose in any jurisdiction, nor is it a commitment from Carillon Tower Advisors or any of its affiliates to participate in any of the transactions mentioned herein. Any examples used are generic, hypothetical, and for illustration purposes only. This material does not contain sufficient information to support an investment decision, and you should not rely on it in evaluating the merits of investing in any securities or products. In addition, Users should make an independent assessment of the legal, regulatory, tax, credit, and accounting implications and make their own determinations together with their own professionals in those fields. Any forecasts, figures, opinions, or investment techniques and strategies set out are for information purposes only based on certain assumptions and current market conditions and are subject to change without prior notice. All information presented herein is considered to be accurate at the time of production, but no warranty of accuracy is given and no liability in respect of any error or omission is accepted. It should be noted that investment involves risks. The value of investments and the income from them may fluctuate in accordance with market conditions and taxation agreements, and investors may not get back the full amount invested. Both past performance and yields are not reliable indicators of current and future results. Past performance does not guarantee or indicate future results. There is no guarantee that these investment strategies will work under all market conditions, and each investor should evaluate their ability to invest for the long term, especially during periods of downturn in the market. Investing involves risk and may incur a profit or loss. Investment returns and principal value will fluctuate so that an investor's portfolio, when redeemed, may be worth more or less than their original cost. Diversification does not ensure a profit or guarantee against loss.